So here are these guys, they're starving, right? And they're saying, well, we're following God. And how come? How come the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself, how, how, come, how come they're not starving? They're having a massive feast. And so fair enough, they ask this question. You see that in verse 18? You see what they say? They say, right? If you're following along in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 14. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Say it right. That's a fair question, though. Right? I mean, and it's interesting that Jesus answers them. The way that he answers them, he actually picks up on a metaphor that John the Baptist has already been using. Um, look what he says here. It's, it's a wedding metaphor. Look at this word picture. He says, um, verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Huh. What's he saying there? Well, Jesus is the groom, and the disciples are the guests. John is the best man, if, as it were, if you want to say that, John the Baptist. Now, but what do you typically do at a wedding? You feast. That's right. You celebrate. You eat food. Sometimes you eat a whole lot of unhealthy food, right? But you eat. You don't starve yourself, and you don't walk around like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, you know, at least you hope not. So do you understand what Jesus is saying here? The presence of Jesus with the disciples far outweighs the tradition of fasting for the moment. And don't worry, when Jesus is taken away, don't worry, these boys will fast. Okay, so we get it. All right, so Jesus is the bridegroom. Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, fasting isn't appropriate. It's not fitting in this present situation. We get it, but what is going on with the wineskin, shrunk cloth stuff? I don't know about you, but I was pretty, I'm, that's, at first glance, it's pretty confusing. I know this will shock you, but I'm not a seamstress, okay? Or a vineyard maker, whatever you want to call them. So look what he says here. He gives two more, it, it's interesting, two sort of cryptic sayings. They're very cryptic, right? I mean, look, look what he says. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, but the patch tears away and the garment, and, and the garment, and his worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. The patch of unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent the new reality that has come with Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. The bridegroom has come. The Messiah is in our midst, in other words. Think about that Jewish brochure. That's what he's saying. Those days now, friends, are here. And Jesus says... The old wineskins can't contain it. See, the kingdom of God isn't Judaism 2.0. You understand? 
it's not just a revision or an update of the Jewish religious system. This was a complete overhaul. You, you ever heard the saying, out with the old, in with the what? New. The, the old wineskins of Judaism can't contain new wine, the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? In order to move forward, one must let go of one thing and move on to another. And that's what Jesus is saying. You, you can't sort of patch up this idea of following Moses and just put it on top of this new kingdom of God, the new covenant that Jesus is talking about and think, okay, well, we're all good here. This is a whole new thing, a new people of God. There's a lot to think about there. And if you're in a growth group, which if you're not, I encourage you to be in one. But if you're not, go to sign up. Even if you're, and if, and if you're in a growth group, this is going to be great discussion time for you this week to talk about still this idea of patches, cloths, wineskins, and all of that. A lot to think about, but here's, here, here's, here's the deal. As Jesus is explaining all this, I want you to picture music starts. And you're like, wow. Like, have you ever seen the fiddler on the roof? No? No? Okay, two of you. You, you know that in the fiddle of the roof, it, the music sort of dictates how you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel happy. You're supposed to feel sad. You know, whatever. And now, as Jesus is explaining all of these wineskin stuff, you start to hear this sad, melancholy sort of music. And you go, wow, what's going on? And just then, there's a knock at the door. This man bursts in, tears streaming down his face falls at the feet of Jesus, shaking, and you can barely make out what he's saying. And then it dawns on you. This guy, his daughter, his little girl, has just died. What parent's heart isn't immediately caught by the plea of this dad whose daughter has just passed? This is a tragic event for anyone. But the emotions are especially felt given who this man is. He's the leader of the synagogue. No doubt this is a godly guy. And that's why he approaches Jesus with confidence, right? He says, I, I, I know you can heal my daughter. Look what he says here. Verse 18. While he was saying, that's still talking about Jesus, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Wow. Just as we're starting to, it's interesting there, think about the wineskins, probably like disciples, this guy bursts in. And, and, look, and look what happens. Look at what Jesus, his response there. And Jesus rose See, immediately there he rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. Wait, wait, hold on. Well, suddenly we, like, we got interrupted in our story. Did you see that there? There's like a, a story within a story. Like we're, we're like following this guy. Like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen with this guy and his daughter? And then, and behold, there's this something else going on here. Wait, wait what? Our, our, our attention is, is suddenly diverted, right? To, a, to another person who needs healing. 
A, a woman appears in this narrative and she's in a dreadful situation. Maybe I can help bring this to life for you. Try to think back 12 years ago. If you can remember back to 2007, what were you doing back then? Some of you weren't alive. Some of you were babies, I get that. But for the rest of us, try to think back to 2007 for a moment. What were you doing for work or school? Where did you live? What was happening in your life back in 2007? I'll just don't shout it out loud. Just th- I'll, I'll give you just a few seconds. 2007, if you can think back just for a moment. You're able to think back that far? Yeah? Good? All right. I know time flies, right? But still, nevertheless, 2007 does feel like quite a ways away when I think about it in my life. A lot has changed in my life. But now picture that since that time, remember you're able to sort of remind yourself where you were you know, in 2007. Imagine since that time, you have struggled with a debilitating disease that no GP, no specialist seems able to fix for you. You feel the pain of it every day, every week, every month since 2007. Not to mention, look, if, and maybe you're like, well, I have struggled with that. Yeah, but how about being labeled by everyone as unclean? How about being socially ostracized by people? That's the space this woman is living in for 12 years. Terrible, right? And no doubt if you were in that condition, you would be desperate. Which is why she sneaks up behind Jesus and thinks to herself, look, maybe if I can just touch this guy's tassels, as it were, I I can be healed. Pick up with me in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. It's interesting how this text allows you to hear this woman's thoughts. It states she was saying to herself. That's the rationale in her heart. And just like the scribes, Jesus knows her thoughts. You can just envision this lady pushing through the crowd, sneaking up behind Jesus, grabbing onto his clothes. And right after this happens, in the midst of the commotion, Jesus' body tenses up. He abruptly spins around, glaring at this woman and shouts, How dare you touch me, lady! Don't you know? Haven't you ever read Leviticus 15? I'm not even supposed to get near someone like you. And besides, I'm trying to help this poor guy out. Shove off. Is that what Jesus says? No, look, no way, right? Look at verse 22. Look, look, what he, look at the way he dresses her. Take heart, daughter. Remember, this is a story within a story. Jesus is on his way to heal a man's daughter and now he addresses this woman as his daughter. 
And he doesn't say, hey, congrats, you touched my tassel. Hey, that made you well. Like it's some magical spell here going on and operating. No, it's not. But it's faith in Jesus. The miracle points to the identity of the one who is performing the miracle. You see, it's not just about healing. If Jesus came to help a woman with a medical problem, that's nice and all, but modern medicine might be able to fix that today. Or at least do it. The event points to something bigger going on here. It should lead those who are watching it to say, wow, we've never seen anything like this. This must be like the days that the brochure was talking about from Isaiah 35. Because this event is just the tip of the iceberg, friend. The kingdom of God is arriving on earth. A whole new world, a whole new kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. Incredible. But now we start to hear the fiddle of the roof music. Here it goes again. The sad fiddler on the roof music. Causing us to think, well, this is melancholy because here comes Jesus. Now he's arriving on the scene. And there's professional mourners there. Even if you were a poor Jewish family, you would hire professional mourners. People to weep and wail. Foreign to us in a first, sort of in a uh, Western society. But even today, if you go to other cultures, they have mourners. Hired mourners, as it were. And, and so this is a huge scene, as it were. Jesus shows up, and the flute players are in noisy disorder. People are screaming, crying. Yet Jesus isn't phased by any of this. And he tells, tells them, hey, look, you, you can go home now. You see that in verse 23? Verse 23, And Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but sleep, sleeping. And they laughed at him. Well, this would seem pretty strange to hear. I mean, a little girl's just died. They've seen her dead. Uh, back then, the way that you would detect if someone was dead is you would take either, uh, well, if it was later, probably not during this time, I don't think glass was where it was, maybe a piece of cloth, but you would see if there was condensation, you put over the person's face. And if they were, if there's a long time, not only with not breathing, but any condensation, you could indicate that this person was dead. These people in this culture know death. Okay, death gets prolonged in our culture. The sun is shining today. It's a beautiful day on the central coast. People aren't thinking about, some people are thinking about death, but probably the average person's not thinking about death. But this is, the, this is a culture where death is not uncommon as it is today. They know dead. And so that's why they, they're like, what are you, are you kidding me? And laugh at them. Like, just asleep. What are you talking about? But then look what happens in verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. Remember the request of just touch my daughter? Took her by the hand and the girl arose. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? 
I mean, we sort of read that maybe in your devotions. You're like, and then the girl arose and... <gasps> but I mean, can you imagine this girl is dead? The grief of this dad, her uncles and aunts, everyone there. If you've ever had a friend or a loved one die, you know, you know the weight of this. You know that it's absolutely, death is so consuming. It is gut-wrenching. You, you know it. You feel it. It's, it's shattering, especially when it's someone young. And here's this little girl restored back. Imagine what that would have looked like as Jesus walked out of the house with her standing beside him. No doubt that would have caused people to just be shocked out of their minds, right? But again, the point is not about the little girl. We don't even know her name. It's not about her. It's about the one who healed her. The one who rescued from death. The one who has authority over death itself. And we have his name. You see, these aren't just random miracles. There's a meaning to them. They are miracles with a purpose. Even death itself is subject to Jesus' authority. Death itself is subject to Jesus' authority, which, which is assuring because last time I checked, the death toll for humans is still 100%. In 80 to 100 years, likely everybody in this room is going to be dead. Everybody. It's weird to think. Like, if I could freeze you and then say, all right, you know, maybe I watched Demolition Man too many times back in the 80s, but if I could freeze you and bring you back in 100 years from now, you wouldn't know anybody. Everyone that's on this earth now will be gone. Oh, where's, where's the prime minister? You know, they'll probably have 500 prime ministers from now until then, right? Sorry. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Judy. Oh, yeah. But you wouldn't know anybody. Your family's gone. Your friends are gone. Everybody is gone. And, and you know, it, it's a, it makes you squirm a little bit, doesn't it? Because you can't avoid it. Even the strongest in this room, the youngest in this room, the smartest, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't, it do, it doesn't matter. You, you cannot avoid death. You cannot dodge it. It's, I know it probably seems so like, oh, yeah, look, maybe, that, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't want to think about it. Think about it. it it's coming. If you're here and you're not a Christian, death is only tragic for you, friend. This life is the best it will ever get for you. Because in death, you won't just disappear or float around this earth disembodied, but you will be judged by God and suffer his wrath for eternity. I mean, have you ever thought, you know when you have a lousy day or a week and you think, oh, if I could just get past this, it'll be done, Right? If I could just get out of this job, 
maybe out of this relationship, you know, whatever. If I could just get out of this, if I can just sort of keep my head down and get to the end, it'll be over. Right? Hell's not like that. In hell, there's no escape. In hell, it's eternal punishment. I mean, when, when we burn our hand on a stove or whatever it might be, and our hand hurts, ah, and put it under cold water. That's nothing. That's a little tiny prick, as it were. Hell is a place where, just honestly, imagine this. You had a bad, you imagine you had a bad week, a bad month, and then it dawns on you, I'm going to be here another 50 years. Probably the oldest person, actually I know who the oldest person in this room is, but no matter how old you are, even in 95, 6, 100 years from then, it dawns on you after you've suffered nonstop around the clock for 100 years, the wrath of God, I'm going to be here 100 more years. And I'm going to be here 100 more years after that. And then 1,000 years after that. And a million years after that. And a million years after that. That it, and there's no escape. It's not like God's going to say, all right, have you had enough? You will be locked in where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. I'm not trying to be hellfire and brimstone up here. You know, not, not, that's not as I'm trying to keep my voice down, not like, screaming with my hand flying in the air. This is real stuff Jesus talks about. But Jesus said this, friend, listen. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you're here, friend, and God has saved you, this life is the worst it will ever get. This is the closest to hell you'll ever get. Death is only ushers you into relief and rest and enjoyment with your Savior forever. Dying will probably still be painful, but the moment of death itself has been transformed from an end to a beginning, from finality to release, because Jesus reigns over death. Oh, death, where is your sting, right? Do you have that confidence? I'm just trying to paint a picture for you here. Do you have that confidence to say, yes, I believe in Jesus alone. I am trusting in him for the forgiveness of my sins, of sins I've directly offended, God himself. And I believe we're poured out onto Jesus and I'm throwing my whole life onto that. You can rejoice in death because Jesus has conquered death. This is just a depiction of that. Death has no hold. There's no sway over Jesus. He raises this girl for life. And then what happens when Jesus is crucified and dies himself? Raises again. So after this girl's been raised from the dead, there's no stopping the news from spreading. Look, Look at verse 26. And rightly so. I mean, the people who saw her, right? Look at verse 26. And the report of this went through all that district. I bet it did. 
who would not speak of such a thing? And so it seems that every time Jesus performs a miracle, the crowds keep getting bigger. Hashtag miracle worker keeps blowing up Twitter and Instagram. Right? I mean, amen. Uh, yes, right. They didn't have it back then. Jesus' popularity only appears to be increasing, which leads us to this peculiar story of these two blind guys. Am I the only one that read this and was like, what? I mean, think about it. What happens? There's this incognito healing, right? Jesus doesn't heal them on the spot where the crowds are there, but brings them into the house. And then there's this sworn secrecy, right? Shh, don't tell anyone. And then finally, the, the dismissing of Jesus' words by the two guys who've been healed. I suppose if you just cut and paste Bible verses, you could actually make verse 31 look like the Great Commission. You see what verse 31 says? They spread his fame throughout all that district. Yeah, boys. Woo, well done. That's what you're... Oh, wait, Jesus told you not to do that. Oh, that's confusing. What? I thought that was like... Aren't we supposed to spread his fame throughout our own district and our own region? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Well, maybe it helped to sort of step back and take a closer look at this. I, I think the reason why this thing needs to be kept private has to do with how these blind men address Jesus. That is the title they use. It's there for you to see in verse 27, if you're tracking along. The title they use is Son of who? David. These are the first people to address Jesus in this manner. And they're shouting this out in the middle of a massive crowd. Son of David! Son of David! Son of David! What does that title mean, though? Some of you might be thinking, I have no idea. Is that David, the guy that killed Goliath? Yes, but what does son of David mean? What does son of David mean? Okay, I'm going to take you boys and girls on a tour, on our little cheesy tour bus, for two minutes. Don't get off the tour bus. There's lions and tigers and bears. So jump on this tour bus with me. Are you ready? Two minutes. And I'll tell you when the tour's done. You can like us on Facebook. You ready? Here we go. When David, King David was king, God made an amazing promise to him. He promised to build David a house, or better yet, a dynasty, that he would put on David's throne one of his sons who would rule forever. And it was in 2 Samuel 7 where God made this covenant with David, which from that point onwards created an expectation of an ideal king coming from David's line. Still on the tour bus with me? Good. So for example... You see in the book of Isaiah, a, a new David, a promise of a new David. I'm going to read from Isaiah 11 real quick. When Isaiah writes this, David is dead. It's like I am legend when Will Smith says, everybody know you know he's dead, right? I don't know where that came from, but somebody's like, I what is he talking about? Will Smith? Anyway, when Isaiah writes this, 
David the king long gone. Got it? Long gone. But yet he says this in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. Huh? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He goes on to say that this son of David will establish an eternal era of peace, justice, and righteousness. And he will sit on the throne forever. In chapter 9, this son of David is given unique royal titles like wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Remember, King David is long gone. So this David figure functions as a model of the ideal coming king, the Messiah. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, you have this hope that one day a king, a savior, will sprout up from the line of David. In fact, in Jesus' day, Palestine was rampant with this messianic expectation. It's everywhere, which is why when Jesus enters Jerusalem on the donkey, what do the people shout? What do the people shout? Echoing Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. And Matthew's not shy about that. All throughout his gospel, he paints a portrait of Jesus as the true son of David, the long-awaited Davidic king. Jesus is the anticipated king from David's line. Congratulations, you made it to the end of the tour. Like us on Facebook. I know, that, I know I'm a big dork up here to say that, but, but hopefully from that brief tour, you can see how loaded this phrase, son of David, really is. Yeah, that sounded scary. <laughs> so here are these blind dudes shouting this phrase out of the top of their lungs. Do you see the significance of that? So, while it's certainly true, Jesus is the anticipated king from David's line. His time to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead has not yet fully come, you see. For instance, if you read in the Gospel of John, there, there's a point in Jesus' ministry where he did not enter certain towns because the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. And his brothers come up to him and they go, oh, come on, Jesus, you know, look, man, what's the big fuss? Don't you want to show yourself to the world? And, and this is what Jesus says in response to his brothers. My time is not yet here. My time has not yet fully come. There will be a point when Jesus discloses his identity, but not yet. So, the secrecy here may have less to do with the healing itself and more to do with the awareness of Jesus' role. Does that make sense? Miracles with meaning. And lastly, in verse 32... As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this, uh, never like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Cheap shot, if there ever was one. 
And Jesus will deal with this in chapter 12. They don't deny Jesus' power. It's undeniable. But they question his source. You can't get much further between those two responses, can you, though? One saying, wow, we've never seen anything like this. And, the other, and then they chime in like a total wet blanket. You know when that happens, right? When you're excited about something? It's the worst. And you're like, oh, yay, we're going to go. And someone goes, yeah, well, it's rainy today. Thanks. It's like way worse than that. Because here is the Messiah. Here's the days of the brochure. And they attribute his works to Satan. Could you, could you get missing the mark more than that? And let me say, it was possible to be there, though, and miss it. To see this miracle and fail to get the point. That's why we need to be thankful, friends, that Matthew gives us the interpretation of this event, that Jesus is the Messiah. These miracles aren't just random. This isn't just random collections of of some nice stories. He's pointing to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says later, earlier on in chapter 4, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. And that's what he's calling you to do. Remember I told you at the very beginning of this sermon? You can't just watch Jesus go by, think that somehow your indifference is going to give you a pass when you die and have to face God. It will not give you a pass. It will, your indifference will condemn you because you have not surrendered to Jesus as king. You've not turned from sin. And that whole depiction I gave you about hell will actually be a reality for you forever. I pray it's no one in this room. But for those of us, what rejoicing we can have to say, yes, Jesus has authority over death itself. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because I'm throwing all my weight, all my trust on Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that if there's some here that don't know you, that they would not be able to sleep tonight until they come to repentance. Lord, that you would eat them up from the inside, cause them distressed so that they can understand the weight of their sin. And Lord, that you would be glorified as you save them and grant them faith. Lord, I pray now as we we think about the realities of eternity and who you are and that we can throw our weight onto you because Jesus, you have conquered death that we can celebrate in that. And Lord, we want to share that with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.